Welcome to this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. And today we're talking about Hector Berlioz's Les Troyans, which debuted uh, partially in <laughs> 1863. It's an opera, Eric, uh, on the grand scale, but also that's had a sort of checkered past. Yeah, it's well, it's got a lot of things kind of going against it as far as becoming uh, something that that regional theaters could produce because it's it's uh, it's a French grand opera. It's a masterpiece of that genre, which means that it's huge in scale. I mean, it's not just long, which it is. <laughs> Let's not mince words. Five plus hours. Uh, yeah, the give or take. Right. But it it's got lots of big big scenes which require a lot of people on stage uh it requires ballet corps it requires huge choruses a large complement in the orchestra pit and it requires singers who can handle the principal roles and these roles are not easy they are really really not easy to undertake and not just because of the length although certainly that's a part of it based on virgil's aeneid yes it's the story of the way that Berlioz constructs the opera in, in two parts. Essentially, you've got the first part is the fall of Troy, mm-hmm. and then the second part is uh, Aeneas and the Trojans in Carthage, right. uh, where he uh, he meets Dido, etc. So let's talk about the first part, and we have there the destruction of Troy, the famous wooden horse, and the chaos that ensues when the Trojans are tricked by the Greeks into taking the wooden horse inside the walls of Troy. This is an opera that the the principal roles here, you know, there are three major, major roles. There's Cassandra, there's Aeneas, and there's Dido. And in this first part, there's just Cassandra and, and Aeneas, even to a lesser extent than Cassandra. It's really her show in Acts 1 and 2, which is part one of the fall of Troy. Cassandra and, is the great prophetess. She is the one who is constantly warning the Trojans not to be taken in by the, the wooden horse. Right. But in, in, in mythology, she has been cursed by the gods uh, so that she has the gift of prophecy. She has the gift of foresight. She could see what's going to happen, but she's been cursed so that no matter how vehemently she may put forth her prophecies, no one will believe her. And uh, and this is what happens here. She knows what's in the Trojan horse. She can see it coming. And, and she's standing on, on the battlements in this amazing scene. It's one of the most amazing scenes in all of opera. And she's standing on the battlements. And you, depending upon how they stage it, but you are seeing what's happening through her eyes. She's she's telling you what's going on. You know, they're, they're taking the horse, they're moving it toward the city, and you can hear the Trojan march as they bring the horse toward Troy. And she's just getting more and more agitated because she knows what's in the horse, and she's praying, praying that the people will figure it out before they bring the horse in. And then there's a one moment where the music just stops, and, she's, and she says, oh, Jupiter, please, let them, you know, let them figure out the, what's going on here. And because they hear something stirring inside the horse, and then the people just go, ah, that's nothing, and they keep on coming. <laughs> and um, Well, there is that whole thing with Leoko one. Aeneas comes back, and he said, I saw Leoko one who had thrown a spear into the into the into side the of the wooden horse because he thought that there was something that wasn't quite right with this wooden horse. And as soon as he did that, these two serpents come out of the sea and drag him back into the sea. And Aeneas interprets that as punishment 
for defiling this gift. Which was dedicated to Pallas Athena. Pallas Athena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrongly. (laughs) He's dead wrong. The, The thing is that this whole opera, this whole epic work is it's it's epic in scale because it depicts not human beings against the backdrop of history which is what other french grand opera composers like meyerbeer did it's it's about individual people against the backdrop of history this is about history this right. is about setting these great iconic events in human history and giving them their due so it's not so much about the individual people and their individual foibles and problems. It's about their place in history. Of course, uh, I mean, the title is Les Troyans, the Trojans. And it's, it is that story of Aeneas, but Aeneas as he is invested with the future of, the, of Italy, of founding uh, Italy. Right. And throughout the whole opera, there is that cry that comes back. Italy. 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 Exactly. Because it's the gods calling upon him to fulfill his destiny. Because if you look at it as Aeneas's story, Aeneas as an individual, it's kind of ludicrous because here's this heroic figure. He's got this heroic music. He's got this heroic voice. And he's, you know, a hero of the Trojan War. But if you take what you see only in the opera, every time he's faced with something uh, the least bit uh, troublesome, he runs, he runs away. away to the sea to the sea we've got to found Italy bye you know the fall of Tro- Troy is falling he's running away Dido gets a little clingy and he's he's off to sea again um, so it's not but it's not about that it's about as you say his part in the founding of Italy in the great historic world changing events that are depicted in this opera destiny destiny indeed part two is set in Carthage, where Aeneas and the the Trojans, they take shelter uh, in their ships uh, from a storm and uh, ask if they can stay some time in Carthage until they can sail back out to sea again. And Dido, the queen, sees Aeneas and thinks, "Mm -hmm, he's kind of (laughs) tasty. Indeed she does. Of course, the, the irony is that she sees in Aeneas, she sees so much of herself. The Carthaginians had left Tyre and they had come and established this new city in much the same way that Aeneas is destined to found Rome, to found Italy. And yet, what happens? She falls madly in love and everything else goes out the window. That's right. all she can see. Right. And it's, it's uh, important to note that Berlioz very effectively establishes the fact that she is a great queen. She's a great statesman. In the, in the tradition of great queens of Elizabeth I, you know, beloved by her people who sing this beautiful hymn to her, Gloire à Didon, Glory to, to Dido, uh, when we first meet her. And he establishes the fact that she is beloved and a truly great queen and for her to be so smitten with someone and and to block out all of her duties of of statehood and and all of her duties as queen for the love of this man is is really wildly uncharacteristic of this person and it's in some respects it's sort of a, a dereliction of her duty completely and that's that's where that we get that that sort of volta facie because with Aeneas he is asked 
to decide between his own personal desires, which would be to stay with Dido because yes. he loves her, or to go on and fulfill his destiny in founding Rome, in founding the new Troy. Yeah. And he follows destiny, whereas Dido follows her heart. Right. right. Oh, the irony. Oh, the tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, we have the, 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 the closing image of Dido killing herself with Aeneas' sword uh, on the pyre of all of the, the Trojan belongings that are being consumed by the flames in Carthage as the Trojans sail away to found the new Troy. And with her dying breath, cursing the race of Aeneas uh, for, for generations to come and calling upon her, uh, what would you call it? Uh, she calls on Hannibal to avenge her. Uh, and Hannibal Carthaginian is Carthaginian descendants. Yes, descendants, thank you. I couldn't think of the word. <laughs> the descendants that, that are a little way into the future, but she calls upon him to, to avenge her with her dying breath and uh, as Aeneas goes off to, uh, as you say, his destiny. It's interesting that at the end of part one and part two of this opera, it's Aeneas leaving. Yes. <laughs> Always in pursuit of that destiny Fulfilling his that destiny. has been foisted upon him. Exactly, exactly. And uh, throughout it all, it's the most amazing score by Berlioz, perhaps his greatest work ever. You know, he's following the grand opera conventions, you know, of the scale of it and the uh, the, the twists and turns in the music. But always there's a, a sort of a classical restraint that sort of harkens back to the classical period, like people like Gluck. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a unique score uh, and undeniably a masterpiece. And it's been described as the Gallic equivalent of the ring cycle. You've got Wagner's Absolutely. ring cycle based on uh, the prose and the Lungen lead. I mean, uh, exactly. Uh, epic, epic uh, poems, as is Virgil's Aeneid. And you have uh, both composers embracing the, the, the big picture, the grand, the epic scale, the world changing events rather than the lives of individuals. Bellios is Les Troyans. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening. <laughs>